So we're reading Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies through those who have faith in Jesus. Where, then, is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. This is God's word. Charlotte, thank you. Thank you uh, for uh, reading for us this morning. If you were here last week and thought, oh, wasn't that last week's reading? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Uh, we're um, uh, breaking, I guess, normal patterns of uh, working our way through books of the Bible. Just a short topical series for uh, five weeks. We're calling Saints and Sinners. And... Um, Let me leave this in prayer as we look at this together. Father, once again this morning we we turn and look at, in one sense, very simple truths that are at the heart of the Christian faith. And yet they take us a lifetime to to live out, to respond to rightly. Please uh, give us, no matter how familiar, a deeper understanding and therefore love for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking, um, we're looking there for uh, a few weeks, the saints and sinners. Why so? Well, we're trying to, trying to get our heads around the facts, questions that people often ask. If, um, if I'm a Christian and I know that God's love for me is, is unchanging, it's perfect, he views me as perfect, what does that mean for my behavior? And, and when the Bible says I grieve God, I can be more pleasing to him. How does that work with being sort of perfect? And, and if God's love for me is unfailing, why does he threaten that he might cut me off? How does, how does what? Uh, how does that all sort of fit together? Uh, if we're forgiven, why do we confess? What, what are we doing when we do that? What, what difference does that make? Those sort of things. 
uh, we're looking at. Or um, I tried to put it in little grid form because people sometimes people like that. Uh, this sort of table, trying to unpick a table such as this. Essentially, many of these questions come up. There's a difference between our, our status before the Lord, which is never changing, and our walk before him. So our status is unchanging if we're Christians, but our walk will be fluctuating up and down. Our status before God is unconditional. It's all about what Jesus has done. Our walk with him, how much we enjoy it, well, that'll be conditional on our uh, obedience. Our status before God is complete. There's nothing more to do. But our walk with God will grow. We'll become more like Jesus as the years go on. Uh, I guess to use sort of more biblical or traditional phrases, our union with Christ is perfect. Our communion with God is variable. We have good days and bad days, don't we know it? We will never lose the Father's love for us. That's impossible to do. But his pleasure with us, well, that'll vary. That'll ebb and flow. Then we get positional holiness, one sense that we can never be more holy than we are if we're a Christian. But it'll actually grow and fade occasionally in daily life. Or in other language, you could say, we have been justified, and that never changes, but we are being sanctified. That's ongoing. So when we get those sort of categories confused, our status before the Lord and our walk before him, when we get those mixed up in our heads, then emotionally, uh, we can be in a bad place. It matters. It matters. It matters for uh, what we believe the Christian life is like, what we expect of the Christian life, for our confidence, for our peace, uh, and therefore for our actual behaviour. All these things, uh, they matter to get right. Now last week, good, last week and this week, we're on the sort of status side, unchanging, thinking about our relationship, the, or our status before the Lord, truths that can never change. And hopefully they're sort of familiar things if you've been a Christian for a while, but it is a chance to get them, I think, clearer in our heads. And therefore, I hope, restore joy to our hearts. But we started then last week, we're thinking about legal language. When you think about status, you're a citizen, you are not. Uh, it's that sort of thing. You, you, you have a passport, you do not. Those sort of things. It's legal status we're talking about. And therefore, uh, the language the Bible chooses to go for is justification. A right standing before the Lord. Or righteousness. Justified, righteous. Two English words translate one Greek one. Precisely the same meaning. But it's our status before the Lord. Uh, and so we thought about it in these terms last week, if you were here. It isn't, upon the cross, the great exchange that we've sung of already. Jesus is positive. He is righteous, always obedient. We're sinful, fallen under God's judgment. And the great exchange is not that those are cancelled out. But it is indeed a swap. So if you, again, if you like your, your sort of, here we go, a little bar chart for you. Uh, Jesus, he's righteous. He has the right to eternal life. We, me, condemned under God's wrath. And upon the cross, it's not this. Look at that. Uh, it's not that we become neutral, but rather. Oops. There we go. There we go. A uh, few, few. God, we're all very worried for a moment. Um, uh, yeah. uh, we get righteousness, the right to eternal life. Jesus takes our condemnation under God's wrath. We get what belongs to him. So it's not that we become neutral. It's not that 
who cancel one another out. It's not merely that our debt is paid, but it is, if you will, we become billionaires. It's not merely that we're set free from prison. It is, if you will, we're raised up and put upon a throne. And sometimes, just in Christian language, you, you know, we forget the second half of that. We're free, yeah, and given all that belongs to Jesus. Very, very wonderful. But the question I want to look at this morning is how do we secure that status that can never change? How do we get that status as justified? The answer is by faith in Jesus Christ. What do we contribute? Nothing. We just purely receive. And as I say, that matters so much for our peace of mind, for our assurance and our behavior. So three things, and uh, hopefully they're not complicated. They may be familiar, but golly, we need to know them over and over again. Three little things we're going to say. First then, we're justified by faith, not by works. Romans 3, the classic text to turn to for, uh, for this. Romans 3 and verse 21. But our righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes, how does it come? Through Faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe through faith. That gets, that's the sort of summary. Paul is going to amplify on the through faith a little bit more in verse, in chapter four, verses one to five. Let me read that. Chapter four. What then shall we say about Abraham that he, our forefather discovered in this matter? Clearly the church in Rome, some of the Jewish uh, Christians were saying, just so we're clear, Abraham, He was heroic, wasn't he? I mean, God called him into a relationship. But then then it was Abraham's obedience that meant that he was righteous before the Lord, wasn't it? It was when he he circumcised everyone in his family. It's when, in chapter 17, it's when in chapter 22 of Genesis, he he offered Isaac. That's that's when he was put right with God, wasn't it? By what? By his moral heroism, by his obedience. And Paul is saying, no. What should we discover that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. But not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Wow, if if Abraham really was, it was his performance, it was what he did, it was his obedience that meant that he had a right status before before the Lord, that Abraham can boast, look at me, look at me. But that's not the case. Verse 3, Paul wants to emphasize, he what did he do? He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 4, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. Now you and I get that. If we've ever worked at any point in our lives, we know that whatever it may be, on the 25th of the month, our employer transfers money into our bank account, and whatever it may be, a large or small sum, on the 25th of the month, a thousand, ten thousand, whatever, you know, if you're Cristiano Ronaldo, 600,000 euros or whatever it is per week, per extraordinary per month. Anyway, let's not get upset about that. Whatever it is, on the 25th of the month, the salary arrives, and we say, good. Because I've earned that. Now that's very different from perhaps on the 26th of the month, one of your co-workers has had an exceptional year in whatever field it may be. 
They've, in the medical sphere, they've discovered a cure for cancer. In the financial sphere, they've made gazillions of money. Whatever it is. One of your colleagues has had a phenomenal year and receives a bonus of £10 million. But on the 26th of the month, they just pass it all to you. That's a gift. We all know the difference between money we've earned and therefore you're obliged to pay. If on the 25th of the month you've done your work and your employer doesn't pay you, you say, oi, give me my money. You may be a bit more polite. You may not be. You may be less polite. I don't know. That's up to you. But I have earned my money. It's wages. That's very different from a gift. That's all he's saying. And Paul is saying in Genesis, that's what happened to Abraham. He was given a gift. The status of being justified, a right relationship with the Lord, was a gift. It was not an obligation. Now, no matter how familiar or unfamiliar that truth is, there's still a little part of us that kicks against it. Uh, Many years ago, a friend uh, went to uh, college in the States. And as part of their college degree, their first year, they had to do, or everyone in there was obliged, they had to do uh, a course in New Testament theology. And no matter, it doesn't matter if the degree was English or science, they all had to do New Testament theology uh, as a fairly first standard first year course. And at the end of the year, the lecturer was a little bit unhappy with how they'd responded in class and, and their grasp of such things. So the lecturer thought, I know what I'll do. And he set them an exam which was a stinker. Fair. Legitimate, everything, nothing that they hadn't looked at, but was just a beast of an exam. Uh, and the culture of this college was that uh, come results day, all your results are plastered on a board. Uh, you don't get them in an envelope uh, in a sort of polite way. They're just all visibly displayed. And so everyone was a little bit worried about this one because it had been a stinker. And they all go up, about 100 odd students, and look at their results. 22%. 13%. 29%. Fail. Fail, fail, all a hundred, fail, fail, all around. At which point there was uh, some discontent uh, amongst the student body and they went, you know, went to see this uh, lecturer's, I uh, went to his office, knocked on his door, what, what, what is this? You can't, I mean, you know, do you know what my grade point average is? You can't fail me. I've never failed anything in my life. You don't fail me on this. What is your, what is your ridiculous course? I'm studying science. What do you fail me on theology for? It's this sort of outrage and sort of hundred pour into this room. This sort of the, the outrage sort of gets louder and louder and generates. You can have your papers back. And so he gives them all their papers and they, and they flick through them and they can, but on the front there's their mark, whatever it may be, 23%, but also a grade, A. And 30, 13% A. And as these papers get distributed, they'll think, what do you got? I got A. What do you got? I got A. What do you got? I got A. We've all got A's. Yes. How come? I've given them to you. But we've all got different marks. Yes. Bad marks. Yes. Now some in the class then started to go, oh, we see what he's done. <laughs> All of us have failed the exam, but you've given us an A. Yes. Okay, that's what you wanted us to learn from your New Testament course, isn't it? All of us deserve God's condemnation, but you're, Jesus, give, you know, we're given forgiveness, we're given righteousness. That's right. <sighs> and there's a big, big collective groan. Now, hold on, but there's a few in the class started to grumble. Well, that's all very well and good. 
But I didn't want to be given an A. I want to earn an A in my classes. You don't, you're just making his point for him. Just let it go. Let it go. And one or two others saying, it was all very well always getting A's, but look, he got 13%, I got 30%. I should get a different grade to him. No, 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 let it go. Let it go. Or this is going to be the case, you know. My friends, just interesting to observe, they were just really pushing against it. Because instinctively, we don't like that. Being told that we can never earn righteousness before God. We can never earn a right relationship with him. And even when we're given a gift, well, thank you, I'm glad I've got an A and not a fail. But actually, I want my A to be higher than his A. Because I did get a bit better than him in the exam of life. And let it go. Let it go. That was kind of what Paul is going to say, go on to say. Don't boast. Righteousness is God's work, not ours. It's God's gift, not our achievement. We kind of kick against that a little bit sometimes. But when we know we failed, when we recognize that, we're very grateful it's a gift. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, I hope you know that. If, if you're not a Christian, maybe that isn't, maybe that is news. But let's poke into the detail a little bit more. Um, the gift of righteousness, it is not God making us righteous, but it is Him declaring us so. If you know anything of your history, uh, 500 odd years ago, this is, this is the big debate in the Reformation. The two issues of the Reformation, scripture, could you trust it? Uh, or do you trust it or the church's authority? And justification, how does it happen? So Martin Luther, leading the charge, says, justification, righteousness, it is a legal declaration. It is as if God, well, we'll come to explain it more, but God stamps us externally, you're righteous. It's something that happens outside of us. It's not an internal process. The medieval church of the time says, no, 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 it's what happens inside of us. Martin Luther, no, it's external to us, a gift. Now, the the culture of the time and the medieval church will say, no, what happens is Jesus gives us righteousness But that's a bit like a a sort of a moral growth hormone. He gives us that injection and we go, okay, now I can live differently. And we work our own righteousness, we progress in it. Or, it depends on age and stage, whether you like such things, uh, grace in the medieval church is a bit like spinach for Popeye. You know, dear old Popeye in every cartoon, he's feeble, uh, he's sort of old and wrinkly, and, and uh, he's always getting beaten up. But what happens, of course, he takes his spinach, and all of a sudden, now he's got his spinach, he grows in strength, and he can fight back. And for the medieval church, that's grace. In fact, that's righteousness. Jesus gives us a little bit of a boost. And then we fight, and then we make ourselves righteous. It happens within. That is completely different from what Luther and the Protestants, reformers said. No, it is external. It's a gift. It's a status. It's not inside of us. It's outside of us. Now, why does that matter so much? Well, because if righteousness is something internal to us and we have to work it up to a certain level, what happens if I die and I'm never righteous enough? I'm shut out of heaven. 
Have I, have I made myself righteous enough to win God's love for me? I'm sorry you have not. Oh. Oh, well, maybe he doesn't love me. Whereas if it's a gift, if it's not, the moment you become a Christian, you are given 100% righteousness. There is no more. It's binary. You're condemned or you're righteous. There's no gradation. There's no, well done, you're 50% of the way, keep going. It's binary. Upon the cross, you receive Christ's righteousness. He takes your condemnation. You've got it all. It's a gift. So as Paul wants to hammer on, just look at me with verse 5. Who is the person who gets justified? Verse 5. It's the man who does not work. It's the person who trusts God. It's the wicked person who gets justified. God justifies the wicked. It is not an internal transformation. It's an external gift upon you. We're justified by faith, not anything we contribute, not by our works. Just to push that a little bit further, second thing. We're justified by faith in Jesus, not by faith. I'm getting a bit pernickety, am I? Well, no, I think it matters. I think you'll see why. Sometimes we're not served well by our shorthand. We often say in the Christian faith, we're justified by faith alone. That always means we're justified by faith in Jesus alone. Possibly healthier to say that Jesus justifies us. By faith in him. And just so we clear, verse 22, this righteousness of chapter 3, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. You could say faith is a bit like the empty tube. And down this tube, Christ's righteousness comes to me. It connects me. My faith connects me to Jesus Elsewhere, Martin Luther put it this way, faith clasps Christ's righteousness as a ring clasps its jewel. You know, there's spindly bits on a ring that hold to the whopping great diamond. They're useful because they hold to the whopping great diamond, but the money's all in the whopping great diamond, if you've got such a thing. Our faith unites us to him. It is all about him. So sometimes you, I think people do get confused. Righteousness is not like a coat thrown across the room. It's like, oh, you look a bit cold. Have my jacket. Ha-. It's not as if Jesus says, oh, you're lacking a bit. Here, have my righteousness. And it belongs. It's not a, a thing that's thrown across the room. It's not a stuff or a substance. It's intimacy with him. When you become a Christian, you're united to him and therefore get his Righteousness. So let me put it in these terms. Uh, whatever it was, 16 odd years ago, um, uh, I married my wife, uh, Kerry, and at that stage I was impoverished. I was uh, not, not employed, I was a student. And so in that union, I got a number of blessings. I got her salary, <laughs> which was good uh, at that stage. I was also united to her family. I also get the blessing of in-laws. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, there, there is a real blessing, you know, their kindness, their offers of childcare, you know, their holidays in their house, etc., etc. Those are all blessings I get through you being united to my wife. Apart from her, I had none of them. It is in union with, and it's not that she passes me all these things. You can't really pass me her in-laws and her parents and say they're your parents now and they're nothing to do with me. You get on with them. It is because I'm united to her that her in-laws and, not that it'll ever happen, were I apart from her, that relationship goes. Because they're hers. They're her parents. Her salary. I only get the benefits when I'm united to her. And just so, in the Christian life, righteousness is not a stuff. Jesus is the righteous one. And it is because we're united to him that we receive all the blessings of being united to him of forgiveness, of eternal life, of access to God, of adoption as his children. We're united to Jesus. Our sins are punished in him. In him we declare righteous. He is my righteousness. Now you might think this is all very pernickety and fiddly. Why does it matter? Let me try and explain. Because it isn't the quality of my faith that makes me acceptable to God. It is because I'm united to Jesus who's acceptable. That's why it matters so much. So we must never make faith a work. It's not that God ever looks down upon someone and says, oh, look at Neil's faith. It's very impressive. What a man of faith he is. He's got so much faith in me, I grant him righteousness. Poor old Sheila over here. She's a bit feeble in her faith, and so it comes and goes whether she's righteous or not. Because some days she's got faith, and some days... Faith just unites us to the one we need. So in the old sort of uh, uh, illustration, sometimes put it this way. if If your hand can lift food to your mouth, that's all you need. It doesn't matter if you're strong and can guzzle, guzzle away, or if you're just, you know, you're enfeebled, you know, very unwell. If your hand can lift food to your mouth, it is the food that nourishes you. It's the food that you need. The strength of your hand is really pretty irrelevant as long as the food gets there. And in the Christian life, the strength of your faith is one sense, neither here nor there, as long as it's in Jesus. And sometimes in the Christian life, we sing wonderful truths. We sing, well, I don't know if we sing it today. No, we haven't sung it today. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And yet as Christians, we look all the time at our legs. How are my legs? Are they, are they all right? Don't look at your legs. Look at the rock. You stand upon Jesus. Yet I know Jesus is good, but my faith is a bit wibbly and wobbly. Don't worry about your faith. Don't look at your legs. Look at the rock. My dear wife suffers a little bit from vertigo. You go somewhere, and it doesn't need to be particularly high. You, you can be on a castle, and uh, you go to the turrets. And she'll, oh, no, don't go to the edge, don't go to the edge. Uh, but you know, it's one of those things that mentally you do slightly overcome because she'll say to herself, my legs have gone to jelly, but this castle has stood here for over a thousand years. Trust the castle. And even if your legs go, you'll fall on the castle. You're not going to fall off. Don't look at yourself. How is my faith today? Who cares? How is Jesus today? Just the same as he was yesterday. Still righteous. Still your saviour. Still holding on to you. But my faith is weak. Yeah, it doesn't matter. As long as it's in him.
Don't look at yourself. Don't look at how righteous am I. Your righteousness is in Jesus. And you're united to him. But my faith is weak, but it's still there. That's why it matters. Faith is not our righteousness. Because then we look about, we, we think about how good is my faith? Faith in Jesus. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our perfection before God. You're not justified by your faith. You're justified by your faith in Jesus. Your faith unites you to Jesus who justifies. That, that might seem like I'm playing game, but do you see it matters so much? Because it means we look to him and not to ourselves. We're justified by faith, not works. We're justified by faith in Jesus, not by faith. And so, is Paul's point in this passage, boasting is excluded. Verse 27, where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Paul is writing to a church that's divided along racial lines. And some of the Jews are thinking themselves superior to some of the Gentiles. But of course, this is the most profoundly humbling truth. What do we contribute to our righteous status before the Lord, of being acceptable to him? Nothing. Now, we can know that mentally, but living that out... Is hard. The church in Rome found that hard to do. And so we boast subtly. We think we're all Christians, but I am a better Christian than her because my behavior is much better. Well, what do you, what do you mean by that? I feel a little bit superior to him. Because his life is a mess, and I demonstrably sin much less than him. Therefore, I am better, obviously. Well, not in your status you're not. Your enjoyment of walking with the Lord might be, but your pride is a bit iffy, so let's not go into details. But your status is not. Your status is just the same. It's very easy to look, at, look down upon Christians who whose struggles, whose battles are different from ours, and therefore play our own sin on side. Look, here's one example. Uh, a few years ago, I can think of a girl, Amber, we'll call her. Uh, Amber was uh, sleeping with her boyfriend and shouldn't have been doing so, and was confronted by someone at church, another girl, we'll call her Betty, A and B, Amber and Betty, but anyway, just run with it. Um, Betty confronted her and said, I can't believe you're doing that, you know you shouldn't be doing that, you must stop doing that. Uh, it was a somewhat forceful encounter. It wasn't in tone caring it was quite uh, you really ought to stop that said Betty to which Amber replied well God hates your pride and I'll stop sleeping with my boyfriend if you stop being proud how about that it is very easy to see you know, my battles are not your battles and I look down upon you because I have no problem with that I don't have that struggle and then we play our own sin on side. It's quite easy to do that. But what grounds have you got to boast? If it's all about what Jesus has done. And you contribute nothing. Or, look, this is a bit... Uh, you might not like this. 
What about, uh, let's give you a slightly punchier example in one sense. Uh, what about, um, I'm just trying to make a point, uh, but what about the abortion of an unborn child? For some people, that is just beyond the pale. No, it's, it's not a good thing. It's a horrible thing. But for some people, that is just beyond the pale. And, and if anyone has done that, that is just unforgivable. Well, it's bad. But of course, when Jesus is warning against self-righteousness and, and says that anger is in the same category as murder, your anger is clearly bad, uh, depending how it manifests. So you want to be careful about thinking you're better. But is there no, really no difference between murder and anger? Yeah, there is. We'll do that in a couple of weeks' time uh, when we think about our walk before the Lord. But it's very easy to look down upon others. My Christian life actually is just better than theirs. Well, be careful. Just because you scored 18% and not 13%, still a fail. Well done. Well done. 18%. Well done. Still a fail. So boasting is excluded, says Paul. But the flip side of boasting is so is despair. Despair's got to be excluded too. Every so often, you'll get someone who's, who'll say, you say, I've not seen you at church recently. I don't, yeah, I couldn't come for a few weeks. Why couldn't you come? I didn't belong. What do you mean you didn't belong? I just, I just couldn't get over that I'd done X. And so I just couldn't come to church. I felt too bad. Hmm. Or someone will say, I can't, I just can't get over the past. Look at those things I did in the past. I just can't, I can't forget them. I can't move on from them. I can't let them go. But what's going on there? I can't come to church. I can't get over the past. It is still, we're trying, we think, my performance is the key determiner of how I relate to God. So what do you do in those settings? Well, sometimes I'll say, look, well, it begins with knowing that even your best days don't merit salvation, just as your worst days don't uh, merit rejection. Your status cannot change before the Lord. It cannot change, because where is your right standing before the Lord? It's in Jesus. You can't lose that. So what do you do? Well, sometimes you just write down the very worst of what you've done, everything you think is horrific, everything you struggle to forgive yourself for, write it all down and then just burn it. Sometimes it's helpful. Make yourself a cross and nail it to the cross, if you will, if you want, because it is gone. Do you think there is something that God, who is omnipotent and knows all and knows your heart, do you think there's something that God is going to discover about your past that he doesn't know already? That he can't forgive you for? There is not. If you're trusting in Jesus, you've not merely been set free from prison, you're raised and set upon a throne. There's nothing more he can discover. Jesus has paid for it all. He's given you eternal life. And so the beginning of the Christian life really is you don't look at yourself, you look at Christ. You don't make yourself righteous. You accept that in Jesus, you have the status of being righteous. You're united to him. It can never go. 
You'll never achieve it yourself. You'll never work it up. That's why the Christian life is essentially not looking at yourself. It's looking at him. Because we're justified by faith in him and his righteousness. No boasting, no despair, because it's him and he doesn't change. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, it may be that we've never really got our head around these truths. Pray that your spirit will be at work, so we do. Father, it may be that these are truths mentally we've known for 50 years, and yet still they don't affect us as deeply as they should. And we still look down upon others and boast of our achievements and despair of our how you could ever love us at times. Father, no matter where we're at, will we be increasingly those who look not within, who look not at ourselves, but look to Jesus Christ, see him as the glorious, righteous one, and know we're united to him. Therefore, all that is his is ours. We pray that that would be the most joyful encouragement to us. In Jesus' name, amen.